Welcome to the only show dedicated to a new way of delivering healthcare. This new model has no name, but let's go ahead and call it direct contracting or digital first care. The new way centers on opting out of the games bigs play with their rigged dice, their crooked game board, and their purchased referees. And if you're looking for a future where everyone wins, that's the doc, the consumer, the employer, and with assured amazing outcomes and measurably lower costs that are ranging up to 60%, you're in the right place. I'm Ron Barshop, your host. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the new healthcare economy. Today, nurse practitioners, which we'll call DNPs, have full practice authority in 22 states plus DC. Now, the states are mostly lightly populated states, but not Maryland, not Colorado. And what does that mean? That means that they can assess, diagnose, and interpret diagnostic tests and prescribe medications independent of docs in those 22 states and DC. In addition, in 36 states and most territories, there's some sort of a form of equivalency between nurses and docs, but there will be supervision involved with 36 minus 22 states. So 14 states have some doctor's supervision. Okay, so basically what they're saying is both white coats are equal in a couple of dozen states, and in another dozen states, they're not exactly equal, but they're working towards it. Why is this happening? Well, private equity and bigs that own a lot of primary care practices and telehealth companies, et cetera, are pushing this equivalency because NPs are 30% lower cost than primary care doctors and over half opt into primary care. So they fill a slot very nicely. And we aren't producing enough PCPs to replace a third of the 400,000 who are age 58 plus years on the tail of a career. I know a lot of them that work into their 70s and 80s because they're in such high demand as locum tenens. But this is all happening as the silver tsunami of Medicare enrollees is growing by 10,000 people a day. So that's going to go on for six more years. So we're having doctors age out as Medicare enrollees are aging in. Big problem. So here's the big issue we've discussed on the show recently, if you're paying attention, is we have 30,000 nurse practitioners graduated from 570 schools last year. One in six of these programs are online only. And what some students report, not all, but some students are reporting is the, the classes are a joke because they're self-paced PowerPoints. There are no guidance counselors or admission officers at some of these online-only schools. So basically, the problem is bigger than just these diploma mills that are not bricks and mortar. It's much bigger because 85% of the folks that are graduating from the, of the 30,000 I was talking about are not clinical tracks. They're not prepared, in other words, to go see a patient. They're more of a what they call practice or academic track. That's a big problem. That's really the big problem here. So there are also no national standards for teaching these clinical tracks. They're all over the board and their clinical skills are basically scary to non-existent in basic assessment, pharmacology, and soap notes to get paid by insurance. I would say that's a problem. You might say so too, if you're listening. So two nursing programs, one in Tampa and another in the Bronx, last year were decertified and a few more are being looked at if they have, let's say, a 100% passing rate because the matriculation rate nationally is 80%. Or maybe they have super low state licensure passing rates. So the bigger issue is bigger than these crooked diploma mills. The bigger issue is that 85% are getting their nursing white coat without really clinical training that's proper. 
And what we have today as a guest, you heard from doctors how they're upset about this on this show, but you're going to hear today from a guest who taught at nursing schools, is a nurse, uh, DMP, and has a lot to say, and he's very brutally honest with himself, with his profession, and with the other side of the story here. So the problem with these crooked diploma mills and with this low clinical training is that it doesn't happen in medical schools. You never hear about a medical school getting decertified or getting you know, kicked out by a state. Now, people will say, well, what about Hanneman in Philly? Well, they closed, but they weren't closing their residency program. They were closed because they got beat by the competition in Philly, which is a street smart, tough place to do business. And frankly, they did sell their residency slots for 107 grand each slot. So they must be pretty profitable to be selling for that rate in an open auction. So what else? The hours of clinical training are, as some of these light nursing schools will call them, 500 hours total clinical training. There are 1,500 hours at the better schools that are more bricks and mortar and not so much online that are what I would call the more serious and thoughtful matriculation programs. So again, remember 80% versus 100% at the better schools. And they even think that's a problem. They wish they could graduate 100%, but it's just not possible. Not everybody makes the grade. Okay, so let's talk about, again, 500 to 1,500 hours of clinical training compared to MDs and DOs will get 15,000, 20,000 hours of non-specialists, if they're a non-specialist. Of course, they're a specialist and they have a fellowship, it's more. But that's the rub with scope equivalency is docs hate this equivalency in these 36 states. It's not fair. They're going to do all of these hours with their last two years of medical school and a couple, three years of residency and boom, shakalaka, the nurse gets in with 1,500 and their equivalent in all these states. So you get it, what the problem is? Now, the other thing doctors will tell you is that anybody can apply to nursing. A liberal arts major or a history major, because they got a, a college degree, can get in some of these advanced programs. And the final insult that docs love to say, and this is kind of the going away smackdown, is that nurses would never pass the MCAT, which I don't believe that, but that's what they say. So should the public be concerned? They aren't. The Gallup polls that come out for decades now put nurses and doctors in the number one or number two slot for most trusted profession in America. Thank God politicians are at the bottom of that list, but here's the numbers. 85% trust nurses, 84% last year trusted doctors. Nurses outweigh doctors in the trust department with Americans. 56% of Americans trust the government in health matters. And then the low 30s comes in, in last place, big pharma and big systems, big hospitals. So again, we talked about all this in the show with Dr. Niran Al-Agba, who wrote a book with this with her partner uh, about the problem here. But here's the rub, and where this is where we have to be fair, is 100,000 of these medical school residents' salaries are funded by $5 billion in cold, hard federal cash. So they're subsidized. The nurses have exactly $0 in residency cash from the federal government. So there's no funded residency or apprenticeship like medical students, their last two years, or residents for several years of hospital and other kinds of rounds. So the nursing boards themselves are pushing for this equivalency because docs have been profiting off of them too long, previous guests of mine have said. It's just not fair. So one final issue before we meet today's guest, you're really gonna enjoy, I promise. Half of all nurses that matriculate drop out within five years. And there's a lot of reasons for that. There's a giant burnout, much worse than doctors in nursing. Um, and we'll talk about that too. I'm excited to introduce you to John Canyon today. He's a DNP. He's also an advanced practice RN, and he taught at Hardin Simmons in Angelo State for many years. Uh, and now he's an ER nurse. 
He's super passionate and a super deep and wide wealth of knowledge about this subject and matters of nursing in general. And his ideas, I think, are important on improving nurse practitioner education. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. The first thing I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add to your is I'm not a DNP. Okay. okay. I'm just a nurse practitioner. I don't have my doctorate in nursing. Okay. okay. Um, the diff and there's a significant difference between a DNP and a nurse practitioner. They're not synonymous at all. So a, a DNP is an academic role or an academic degree. It does not confer any clinical training at all. So if someone has a DNP does not necessarily have the white coat training of a nurse practitioner or a CRNA or whatever other advanced practice nurse role you have. So you have, you can, you can obtain a DNP and not be advanced practice. So there's significant difference there. Whereas you think of an MD or a DPT or a PharmD, all of those people have advanced clinical training, mm -hmm. a DNP, not necessarily. Okay. Doesn't necessarily have advanced clinical training at all. And I'm not, I'm trying, I'm not trying to be cute, but I can tell you the alphabet soup. If I'm confused, there's a lot of other people very confused oh, yeah, about it's, all it's, of the alphabet soup. It's, it's horrible. And nursing is really, 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 really bad about alphabet soup. Their answer to, to problems is just add another letter to the end of your, into your uh, initial conundrum. Yeah. <laughs> and some of these nurses that have maybe 12 or 16 letters, does that mean they're a lot smarter than the rest of us? Oh, no, 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 that, that, uh, that means that they, they paid for, uh, an additional certification, which is not may or may not have, uh, any dem demonstrable benefit to mm -hmm. the degree that they already have. For instance, the nurse practitioner say, uh, the nurse practitioner like me, if you go back and get a DNP in, as well, then you have your NP and comma and your DNP. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because they're not the same. Okay. And the literature does not show any, there's no literature that shows any benefit for nurse practitioners obtaining a DNP at all. And before we unpack all these issues I brought up, is there anything particularly that kind of, kind of stuck with you that we want to talk about first? Uh, no, I can go, I can go down the list to just any, any way you want to. Okay. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I have a lot of thoughts on a lot of this. I want to, this is a big gulp of water before we go into the subject, because it's the subject, I think, is if we're producing way more academics than clinicians, what the heck is going on? Well, I, I don't have an answer for that. Out, outside of, in, in 2010, there was an IOM report that came out that said we were significantly underproducing primary care providers in the United States. And that everybody knows that that's not, not a secret. And so nursing's answer to that was to increase the number of nurse practitioners coming out at a rate that's alarming. And, um, there's not been a lot of control over, over quality in that time. Okay. So I've heard you talk about a bunch of subjects that I, that I think unpack this really nicely. You talked about a consensus model that's 10 years old now that has literally failed us because what the nurse practitioners generated was to guide the states on how to legislate your profession and the scope of practice, but it's just a Swiss cheese full of holes, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's by far and away the worst document ever produced by nursing. And that says a lot, but there's, there are some good parts to it, right? There's some, there's some excellent pieces of it that are, that are good foundational things that we could use to revamp the entire consensus model. And the idea behind the consensus model was to 
teach states what we can and can't do and who can do what and who can't because again our scope of practice is exceptionally confusing so and i want to break that down real quick before we move on the scope of practice for a nurse practitioner is very simple it's three things it's their population focus their education and their training okay so a population focus for example you have a pediatric nurse practitioner so they can only see pediatric patients you have adult nurse practitioners who can only see adult patients etc the neonatal nurse practitioners. So you have a, how that they have a specific population that they can see. And then on top of that, you add their education and training. So the problem comes in is when, for instance, I'm a family nurse practitioner and an emergency nurse practitioner, but we're going to talk about the family part right now. As a family nurse practitioner, I have a specific population group. I can see from, from, uh, you know, cradle to grave. That's the, the population. But the education and training part is the part that becomes tricky. So if you are a business owner, let's say you own a, a clinic and an urgent care. So a family practice clinic and an urgent care. And I'm working in your urgent care and doing an exceptional job for you, right? I do lots of procedures. We do, you know, hormone, hormone therapy. We do, uh, let's say we do IV therapy too and you hire another family nurse practitioner and put them in the urgent care and expect them to be able to do the same things. And they say, wait a minute, I can't do that. And your, your thought as a business owner, well, that's a family nurse practitioner. You're a family nurse practitioner should be able to do the same things. The problem comes is it's all about the education and training portion. So if I've been educated and trained to do that stuff, then I can do it. If I haven't, then I can't. It doesn't, it's not based off of the degree alone. And that's part of the problem with the consensus model is it's they try to focus the degrees and limit them based off of nothing. There's no, there's no specific description in the consensus model of what one can and can't do. It's very, very vague, which is this by design, a good thing. But the problem is people are trying to interpret it however they want instead of based off of those three things. So you have your population, your education, and your training. Well, now people are trying to add in other adjectives, like it has to be academic training, right? Which is just silly because if I've been out, you know, I've been out since 2005 and we have a, over the last five years, emergency medicine has changed from, has transferred into using ultrasound extensively. Now, do I need to go back to school to get training in ultrasound to do that? No, I mean, I can learn I can learn through CME and through on-the-job training how to use ultrasound. It's not a difficult process, but the problem is they're trying to add additional adjectives and trying to change scope of practice without understanding what the base scope of practice is. So there's this big disconnect from our academic community and the actual clinical practice. Is there a 2.0 coming out? Is there going to be a consensus improvement, a consensus model? Not yet. Okay. Is anybody talking about it? I mean, is there a need? There's been a couple a couple articles in the literature, very, very few, because our academic side, um, of course, believes in the consensus model wholeheartedly. So they don't understand the, the, the problems with it. And when you try and talk to them about it, they get very defensive about the, about the consensus model when they don't understand what the problems are. I mean, the, here's, the, the, here's a really, really good example. Okay. When you look at the consensus model, who can work in an inpatient setting or who can work in an emergency setting, right? According to the consensus model, 
and the academics, only an acute care nurse practitioner can work in an emergency department. The problem is an acute care nurse, um, uh, nurse practitioner only can see adult patients. And if you look at the number of emergency departments that are adult only, it's less than 1%, mm-hmm. right? Whereas the family nurse practitioner can see from cradle to grave and can be trained to take care of critical care, critical patients. So the vast majority of nurse practitioners working in the emergency department, depending upon which study you look at is 85 to 92% are family trained. Okay. So do you agree or disagree with Dr. Alagba, who we referenced earlier? And I'm sure you're familiar with her book that talks about, it's called Patients at Risk, the Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and the PA. So what she argues in her book is that patients are at risk. Do you agree that that is a possibility or is a probability? I think the literature is not, has not shown that to be true, right? So the literature is pretty strong on, on nurse practitioners giving safe care. Okay. So I don't, I don't, I don't think that, that there is, there's not any literature that actually substantiates those claims at all that I can find. Okay. Now there might be some out there, but I can't find it. Okay. Um, what I, what I do know is that to me, we need additional hours of education and training before we get out of school, because what's happening is people are now, and businesses now, are understanding that nurse practitioners need additional hours of training when they come out. Say 10 years ago, when you went, when you decided to go from nurse to nurse practitioner, you had to have extensive training as a nurse before they would even look at your application, which as we know is not the case anymore. So you have the ability to recognize sick patients and understand when you are missing something, right? And that's kind of absent. So it takes these people several years to catch up, you know, 6, 12, 18 months to catch up, right? And a lot of businesses are recognizing that. So they are now doing what they call orientation models where they orient nurse practitioners for extended periods of time before they let them see patients on their own. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we have the the places that I've looked at have anywhere from three to 18 months worth of additional education and training prior to letting them work by themselves. Okay. So you have said in a previous interview, uh, John, that the nurse practitioner students that you're seeing that are completely wet behind the ears are exceptionally weak in pharmacology and there's 24 thousand FDA approved drugs. I can understand that's tricky. Pathophysiology, which is the physiology of abnormal states. You said complaint charting is a problem, a solid physical exam where they're just doing simple palpation of the chest, et cetera. And then billable notes, getting paid on notes. Those are pretty five big areas that, um, yes, yeah. yes. I think it's the, the foundation of the whole profession. In yeah. fact, uh, you could, you could argue that it's very weak, which is why, and see, this is the problem. Academia moves exceptionally slow, right? Mm-hmm. So Academia has not responded to that yet. The business world has, which is why you're seeing these additional hours of training required by businesses when they hire a new nurse practitioner or businesses refusing to hire a new grad. They only want to hire somebody who has experience. So if you look at, for instance, I'm going to give you an example here. I worked in an urgent care. I I was brought in to open an urgent care. Um, So we opened urgent care and got it up, got it running. And we were competing with another urgent care in town, which was under the same umbrella corporation. Okay. So they wanted the second urgent care. We came in and opened it. The difference, are you familiar with RVUs? Very. Okay. So, you know, an RVU is, so the, the, the one that they were, they opened averaged one RVU per patient, 0.97 actually. So they averaged a a level three, right? So 0.97, we'll call it one for math's sake and for the listener's sake. So they averaged one RVU per patient. 
when we opened ours, we averaged 2.3 per patient because you, we understand how to document and how to bill appropriately. Okay. I call it maximizing revenue generation. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you understand how to bill appropriately and how to document appropriately, you're going to get more revenue per patient. And because of that, we were making more money. We were getting paid exceptionally well at that urgent care versus the, the same NPs on the same contract at a different urgent care who could not make, couldn't, couldn't generate as much income. So they couldn't require the same salary requirements. Mm-hmm. So when you come in and you can do things like that, you can have, you can get a higher salary requirement, which makes you more productive and encourages your staff to be more productive and encourages your NPs to be more productive. And you end up, the business ends up being more successful. Yeah. I think it's, it's very important what you're saying, but then the family doctors that are really uh, the most experienced and the most respected in my uh, purview are those that are never through learning. Like you talk about abnormal states, you know, getting out of medical school, nobody gets out of medical school and is an expert of abnormal states or nope. Uh, even pharmacology, it's something you're constantly learning because it's always ever changing. Maybe there's only 60 approved every year, but you got to learn them, you know, especially if they're different. So if, if they're coming out of school, so green and so fresh, um, and they're getting that kind of that kind of that bad foundation, they may never catch up. It's like, if you skip algebra, you may never get to the trig in the calculus. That's what, that's what concerns me. Okay. But I mean, the literature so far has not shown that to be the case. So it seems to me people are being successful in spite of their training, not because of it. I'm wondering if, the, you know, the medical error problem, they say, is somewhere between 250, according to John Hopkins, but as high as 410,000 by others. And I'm not putting that on the nurses for sure. But I am saying that they are not charting exactly who's doing it because they don't want to dig too deep into that subject because it's the third leading cause of death in America after cancer and heart. It's way like COVID replaces number three this year, but it's way ahead of number four, number five, and number six. So I, I don't know if medical air, if it's just sweep it under the carpet and we don't really care who's doing it. We don't care if it's nurses or doctors or MAs that, you know, type something wrong. But um, I, you know, I think, I think a doctor who's angry at this, all of this equivalency might say, well, it's all the nurses, of course, they'll say that. Sure. Sure. And I mean, you know, you can, you can point fingers all over the place. Um, but I just, I mean, one, one way that you can kind of, kind of view this and kind of see what's going on is by, by monitoring the malpractice industry, right? So that's a, that's a good way to, to kind of get your finger on the pulse of, of, of where that is from a, um, lawsuit perspective. Now, of course, as we know, the vast majority of those don't ever get, um, see a courtroom or get a lawsuit, uh, filed, but, you know, you can keep your finger on the pulse of the lawsuits and the, the malpractice claims and have a, have a decent idea of, of what's happening in that regard. I'm going to just read you this interesting DOG investigation. This is uh, going into the semian dark side I talked about earlier, and this is, again, no reflection on nurse practitioners. It's a reflection on the criminals that are allowed to open up these schools. And these three guys in Virginia, and by the way, they pulled up roots in 2013 when they got investigated and open up a new school in uh, Maryland down the street. But they coached unqualified individuals to pass nursing board exams. They have helped them obtain employment of various healthcare providers in the District of Maryland. Um, they purchased, helped them, let, they would allow them to purchase backdated, illegitimate registered nurse or licensed practical nurse transcripts and certifications, even though they hadn't attended school. I mean, this is criminal we're talking about here. And then these guys moved to Florida and then they sell illegitimate nursing degrees. I mean, it's, 
So the Florida School of Nursing found them because they had a crappy pass rate in their uh, licensing. So uh, again, I've heard, I don't want to talk about that, but I, that's, I'm just indicating that there are some really bad characters that are uh, attracted to this business because apparently you can get really good loans. Yeah, well, there's, there's, uh, I mean, un the unfortunate reality is, is every, every profession has bad actors and, uh, you know, you're, you can't always, uh, predict someone's future behavior and you can't always, always predict based off of a interview or lack thereof, yeah. uh, what kind of moral compass somebody has. Now, a lot of times you can get a good feel for that, you know, but there's sometimes you can't, and sometimes people's moral compasses change after they've graduated and after they've gotten out. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, lot of Medicare fraud cases and, you know, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's, that's, you, you don't like to see stuff like that. Don't like people, the people that do stuff like that need to go to jail. That's what needs to happen. Now, if we made you king for a day, I've heard you give some very interesting proposals. <laughs> you would make the boards less basic. You think they're a little too easy. Well, it's a basic entry to practice exam. Okay. So it's not an expert exam for nurse practitioners. The board exam is a basic level entry to practice. So they want to make sure you're safe to practice. They're not saying you're an expert when you pass the board exam. So yeah, I would, I would pump up the difficulty on that as well. I'd also increase the number of hours. I would increase our, our training requirements to require an actual clinical doctorate as opposed to the academic DNP that you have now. Um, I think that if, if you do that, you get somebody who comes out who's physically able and ready to uh, take on the take on the role and walk in and, and start working that day. So you said 2000 hours for a generalist and about double that for a specialist. Yes. So you'd get uh, the idea is very similar to what PA school is doing with their generalist at the master's level. So you and the idea is to eliminate the scope of practice issues, right? So we have so many scope of practice issues where people don't understand what we can do, what we can't do, and why I can do one thing and somebody with the same initials can't do it. You know, they, they just don't understand because our our training is not like a residency trained MD, right? So if you have a board certified residency trained MD in emergency medicine, you know what they can do, right? If you have a board certified MD in, you know, general surgery, you know what they can do, right? If you have a board certified family nurse practitioner, well, it's kind of muddy because I can work in the ER, I can work in the urgent care, I can work family practice, I can do... Uh, end of life care at hospice, you know, it's kind of muddy. I can work with an orthopedist. I can work with a general surgeon. I can work with a nephrologist. I can work with, you know, it, it's just so it, people don't under, understand what we can do and can't do. And it's, I mean, it's even, Ron, it's even at the, at the academic level and at the nursing board level, people make this mistake right? They add, they want to add setting as a scope of practice issue. Well, setting is not a restricting on scope of practice. As we discussed earlier, it's population, education, and training. S setting is not a limiting factor, but that's what they like to do is try and use setting as an example. When you're using that, you're not following the, the basic premise of the whole profession. And, and then King John would also add pediatric family practice, oncology, cardio, radiology, ortho electives for every nurse practitioner. Well, every, well, so that'd be a basic requirement for everybody. So everybody would have to do that. Okay. And I think as a, as understanding what goes on in the profession, no matter which field you work in, if you end up understanding what those 
subspecialists do or subspecialties do, it makes you better understand what you're dealing with and when to refer and when not to refer. So there was a study that came out that showed that nurse practitioners typically order more diagnostics and refer at a higher rate than their MD uh, counterparts in family practice. And I think part of that is because those guys have had those rotations through general surgery and orthopedics. And, and so they've seen what to refer and what they can hold on to and take care of themselves. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, you have to unpack one last thing for me because we're running near the end of our time. This has gone so fast, by the way, but I don't <laughs> understand the difference between a DNP and a master's of NP and a PhD. What, what the heck is going on there? Okay, so a nurse practitioner is a master's level training. That's it. You get trained at the master's level as a nurse practitioner, and you're able to be certified. Okay, the PhD is an academic doctorate, just like a PhD in any other field. Okay, okay. it's a research-based doctorate. Okay, the DNP, the Doctor of Nursing Practice, is not clinically based at all. It is, in fact, an interpretive research doctorate. Wow. So it's, it means from a uh, clinical standpoint, it has zero value. And I, I say that because the literature has not shown any value addition from a master's level NP to a DNP. And it makes sense when you look at the curriculum, there's no clinical, there's no clinical addition there. You're not gaining any benefit from adding a DNP to a master's level NP. It's just not beneficial. The only thing that it has done which is beneficial for the profession is increase the number of doctorally prepared nurses because 10, 15 years ago, we were running desperately low on uh, PhDs because people were going to NP school and CRNA school and midwife school and stopping because there was no extra money involved. So they weren't seeing any value. Okay. So, you know, there's tons of advertisements, improve your life, single mother, you know, join uh -huh. nursing uh, and they're not really clear in their advertising for students that they're going to graduate with basically no clinical skills or minimal clinical skills. So there's this, there's this, come on in, join the army and be all you can be. And then they're like, sorry, you know, you can't earn a living as a nurse. You just, you know, got a little uh, extra schooling there. That seems unfair and um, actually kind of false advertising. Yeah, I agree. And um, I think that there is uh, something to the advertising there. They're trying desperately to get people into NP schools because the way NP schools currently are set up, they are money makers for schools. You, there's no overhead, very minimal overhead costs, and you can pump as many students through as you can. And, you know, there's some issues with uh, accreditation where the accrediting body or accrediting people who probably shouldn't be accredited mm -hmm. because of the complaint, the way they have their complaints set up. You have to file a complaint with a name attached to it mm -hmm. in order to uh, for them to take on the complaints. And if you if you're a student, if I'm a student at your school and you see a complaint from the CCNE with my name on it, what's going to happen to me? Yeah. You know, I'm not going to be just, I'm going to be running out of school and be out of money, right? I'm going to fail no matter what. Yes. Right. So, and part of the problem is, is we've, we've switched from our education style from a clinical style of 15 years ago to a more academic style where they're focusing more on um, writing papers and uh, doing um, almost busy work discussion boards instead of focusing on the meat and potatoes. Yeah. And everybody that goes through these programs say they love the clinical best. They love doing the rounds best. 
um, just like every MA loves doing phlebotomy best. Okay, yep. so um, I have a question on insurance panels. Do well, first of all, since we're on the subject, how do I know if my daughter or son wants to go into nursing, which programs actually are legit and which ones are these? Um, diploma mills is too derogatory, but they're not going to get clinical training, the best clinical training. They're not getting the training that you would expect. I yeah. would find a program that sets up your clinicals for you. Okay. If the program does not assign your clinicals, do not attend, which means 95% of the programs out there right now, I wouldn't go to. Show many crickets. Wow. Here, here's the thing. You say you're, you're my instructor and I'm your student. I'm going to your school. I'm setting up my own clinicals. You're not showing up to verify what I'm doing because it's not required. So I'm going and setting up my own clinicals and completing my clinical hours. How do you know that I'm getting any adequate training in those hours? Well, you know, like a judge, if they assign a juvenile delinquent to go work in the homeless shelter, they got to get somebody to sign off. They did their hours. You're saying that doesn't happen. No, there's somebody signing off that they did their hours, but the question is, what's the quality of the education? Oh, got it. Okay. Were they quality hours or were they sitting around charting and... Or were they, were they in somebody's office that they paid so they could get hours just doing nursing work instead of learning how to do the advanced practice part? Sure. Wow. That's scary stuff. So, I mean, the, the, that's the question, right? And yeah. the problem is there's no academic control of clinical training. So if you're, or if I'm your professor, I can't, I can't guarantee that you're getting adequate clinical training. Wow. Interesting. There's so much to talk about here and it's just, we just don't have the time, unfortunately, but uh, if people want to find you, John Canyon, how do they do that? It just, I found you on LinkedIn. Yeah. LinkedIn, Facebook, John Canyon. I'm pretty easy to find um, on YouTube, JC, VNP, you can find, I've talked about some of this stuff on there. Well, we uh, enjoyed visiting with you. You're I always learn by talking to folks with the wisdom. So thanks for your time. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.